Good evening. Welcome again to our seventh large group for RUF this semester. As I mentioned before, my name is Nick Bratcher. I'm the campus minister. Again, I am glad you could be here. Tonight's passage will be 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 10. And it actually, uh, as I read this passage, it reminded me a lot of uh, a TV show that I've been watching lately named Parenthood. Uh, this is my second time through it. Uh, it's essentially a drama, an NBC drama that, that follows the goings on of a family in California with the last name Braverman. Uh, but the thing that really reminded me most of the show was that there's an off-repeated refrain that happens in this show that people keep saying to each other anytime someone's facing, anyone in the family is facing some kind of adversity or difficulty or struggling, uh, they're always reminded that they are, in fact, a Braverman, right? You're a Braverman, so you can ask that girl out. You're a Braverman, so you can, like, forgive your Aunt Sarah or whatever. It's, uh, you know, th- this keeps happening. As, as Bravermans, the whole family, from the grandparents to the grandchildren, are expected to represent the family well. Uh, and often, they find the strength to do so based in their identity as a member of that family. In their shared identity, there is strength. Well, in tonight's passage, John is going to articulate a similar concept, but instead of a a physical blood family, he is going to unpack what it means to be a member of the family of God, to be a child of God. How does one act if you are a child of God? How, How do you carry yourself? What What's your identity? Um, tonight, John is going to argue this. This is simply this. Uh, this is our main idea. If you're a note taker, this is where we're going to camp out. John's going to argue this. Because God has adopted us as his children, we should not sin. It's very simple, very simple, but we're going to unpack it a little bit. Because God has adopted us, uh, adopted us as his children, we should not sin. He's going to argue that, that this is because of three reasons. The reasons we shouldn't sin are three. Uh, the first is our optimism from verse 28, verse 2 through 4, our orientation in verses 5 through 10, our operation. I'll say that again. Our optimism, our orientation, and our operation. Three O's. How do you like that alliteration? You're welcome. All right. Uh, let's read John's word and then in uh, the word of God. And we'll unpack some of that as we go along. And now, little children... Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and and so we are. The reason why the Father does not know us, sorry, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be he has not yet what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. O Lord, we do pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, a rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. As a general reminder of where we've been up until now, this semester we've been making our way through 1 John as a part of our sermon series called That You May Know. We called it that because the recipients of John's letter are confused about a number of things, primarily about who God is and how he's acted in the world. And John writes so that they may know the truth. Last week we learned that a number of people who opposed Christ, John calls them antichrists, have departed from the truth in this young church uh, to whom John has written. And throughout chapter 2, John has been unpacking various tests for the people there to self-examine, to determine if they are true believers or if they actually belong to this group of antichrists. Previously, we've, packed, we've unpacked how God has described, sorry, how John has described these true believers in a variety of ways. They are those who know God, those who are in Christ, those who are in the light, those who abide in the Father and in the Son. John has used uh, a number of metaphors to explain uh, what is true about the Christian, but these identities uh, have all, the thing they all have in common is that they are the theological root, which allows John to exhort his hearers to bear the kind of fruit that that kind of root produces. Uh, Tonight, In verse 29, John tells us uh, that the behavior he will advocate for throughout this passage is one that is rooted in the truth that Christians are born of God. Look at verse 29, if uh, if you would. This is the fundamental assumption John makes of his readers, that we must first grasp if we are to make sense of all that comes after, of all the responses he gives, right? To tell you, Um, even the premise like that if we're Christians, we shouldn't sin makes no sense if you are not a Christian, right? What he is, what he is first and foremost putting before people is if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Christ, the fundamental assumption of you as the reader is that uh, you are God's child. To be born of God means at the very least that God has imparted life to you. He's imparted life to us, just as a mother and father impart life in the act of procreation, but only even more so because it comes from nothing, that God gives life to all things. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we are all born spiritually dead, fundamentally bent toward our own selfish desires. And if we uh, bent toward our own selfish desires and sin, but God... He says, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. In other words, 
Though you were physically born opposed to God and his claims over your life and over your thoughts and over your longings and your identity, if we place our faith in Christ, we are spiritually reborn into a new relationship with God, a fundamentally different life. Before there was death and now there is life. Uh, Though you were born, maybe finding your worth in getting the right grades or winning a trophy to gain some status uh, that's eluded you, though you were born desiring some boyfriend or girlfriend who would finally scratch that itch for approval that you have, uh, even though they may treat you poorly or leave you or disappoint you or riddle you with anxiety if they're going to leave or if they're going to stay, though you were born longing for security and so you take every internship, every job opportunity you can get because you can get enough money, you can get enough uh, clout at some company and then you'll be truly secure, you'll have control. Maybe your control actually manifests itself in addiction like eating disorders or drinking or pornography or even Netflix binging, which we all like tend to think is harmless, but really is not. It's insipid and it eats away at us. Though all of, the, all of this is how we are born, the promise is this. What John is fundamentally assuming about you is that if you place your faith in Christ, God has transferred you from this dominion of death to the dominion of life. That God has rebirthed you, that you no longer live as the old creature, but in fact, you are a new creation with different longings and different desires. When we admit to ourselves and to God that all our striving, all of that other stuff, all, that, all those ways that we were born striving after things that are not God, all those things are secondary and that we have wrongly put them as primary things in our life. When we admit that to God, he is able to save us from these sins through Christ's blood And God, through his Holy Spirit, brings us into life, the true and abundant life that escaped us before when we were dead. We are, as John puts it, born of him. In our passage, John is arguing that that, if you are born of God, if that is the true marker of your life, the fundamental identity that you have, that that changes things. It changes how we live our lives Uh, A friend of mine has a son who uh, last year, I mean, they don't, they didn't play because of COVID this year, but last year uh, he plays in a little league, uh, like baseball team. And this baseball team is terrible. Uh, Just about every week he would call me and lament how terrible his son's team was. Uh, And in fact, it was so bad. They didn't win a single game and his son kind of just stopped trying Uh, he dreaded, he would yell and scream and fight to go to practice. He didn't want to play in the games. He knew they were always going to lose. And so the son became progressively worse and worse at baseball, just making errors all over the place, not being able to hit very well, not being able to field very well. His batting average slumps and the the team didn't even obviously did not make the playoffs. I think to make matters worse, it was like a nine team league and eight teams make the playoffs. It's like, you're just the worst. Um, but shortly after the regular season ended, my friend got a phone call, uh, from the coach of the best team in the whole league 
telling him that one of their players had gotten injured or maybe I forget how it was, got injured or he moved off, moved away. Or he was going to be in town or something. And they needed his son to fill out their roster. Well, you can probably guess what happens. The kid like overnight becomes the next Christian Yelich. If you don't know who that is, it's like a really good baseball player on the Brewers. Uh, he's really good. Overnight, he just like starts trying and uh, the team actually goes all the way to the championship and they win it. And in no small part due to my friend's son's good playing. Uh, if being drafted onto a new team, here's what I'm going to submit to you. If being drafted on a new team as a, as a kid in a little league baseball uh, league uh, can change like baseball practice and habits, how much more should God bringing us to life should God bring us into his family? How much should that change how we see ourselves in our role in our world? How much should we strive to please God and not violate his will by sinning? This is essentially John's argument. To be made alive and adopted into God's familial team means that we no longer need to sin. We no longer serve sin. Let's take the, re- the remainder of our time and unpack John's three reasons why. I mentioned them earlier, but our first is this. The first reason that we don't sin is because of our optimism. For in Christ, we, ha- we have optimism. Look with me at verse 28. Look with me at verse 28. Here, John looks forward in human history to Christ's second coming. Uh, this is a day that Jesus foretold after he was resurrected. And before he ascended, he told his disciples that he would Come again and judge all things. Uh, Revelation in no small part is a little bit about uh, Jesus finally declaring this victory and coming and establishing his kingdom on earth. And uh, as John unpacks what's going to happen on that day, he says at least two things. He declares at least two things that are true of God's children if they are abiding in God in that day. The first is this. We will have confidence on that day. And the second is that we won't have shame. To have confidence, biblically, means that we will have access to God on that day, that we won't shrink away from him, that we won't be cut off from his presence. And uh, that might seem obvious or trivial to us as we stand like 2,000 years downwind in history from Christ. A lot of us, uh, the culture that we're in, we kind of assume, uh, I would argue arrogantly, that God would, of course, want to hear from us, that God would, of course, uh, want a relationship with us. It's why we don't question in our like TV shows and movies and books when a character that has displayed literally no faith or no understanding of God for the first you know, hour of a movie, suddenly when there's a big climax or a hard thing that happens, they like pray. And we don't blink twice at that. We're like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and, if, and, you know, God's nice. He probably listens. Uh, this is what we think. Uh, if we're honest, we think that, um, or when we deceive ourselves, we think that, like, of course God would want a relationship with me. I'm awesome. But the Bible describes a different story. And John's already packed it, uh, unpacked it, that God is light, and in him no, there is no darkness at all. That's from John 1. He tolerates no sin, He tolerates no wrongdoing, no lack of understanding. Uh, God is a God of justice and leaves no room for the weak and oppressed to stay weak and oppressed. He will find all sin and he will judge it. 
Uh, It's far from a given that God would want to have access to us and us have access to God. And yet Jesus has made us a way to approach this God through his death, through his taking on of our sin on the cross. uh, We can approach God at the final judgment and not just approach him with our tail between our legs, right? What John says is, yes, you can approach God. You can have confidence before him, but also that you will not have shame. You will not have shame on that final day. Uh, God isn't going to disappointingly and begrudgingly take you, right? Oh, well, I guess, you know, you're kind of a stinker, but I got to take you anyways because you love Jesus or whatever. Like that's not God's fundamental disposition. There is no shame for those who uh, are found in Christ on the last day. Uh, John says that if we are children who abide in him, we do not have shame and that Jesus has taken that on the cross the sin that we should feel so acutely, right? Uh, In the presence of this perfect and holy God, the sin that we should understand about ourselves is taken and put on Christ and solved once and for all in his finished work on the cross. That means when you are face-to-face with God one day, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you don't have to be worried about your sinfulness, your blemishes. That's all been taken care of. That you will not have shame on that day. Now, here's the question. Why would that future reality keep us from sinning right now? Why would John remind the recipients of this letter of this good news? Well, uh, how does that affect right now? If you've you've read anything at all about uh, addiction um, in like the psychological literature about it, there's this uh, concept of uh, a shame cycle Essentially, this, this shame cycle fuels addiction. It's a very popular idea of understanding addiction. It, it, it fuels unwanted behaviors. And it works essentially like this. The addict will use a substance to cope with a very stressful or hard situation, uh, to, to numb themselves or escape, or um, even sometimes to replay the difficulty that they're experiencing. And then the addict will feel shame about using that substance, vow never to use it again. And then because they feel so much shame over using it, they go to the substance to alleviate the shame that they have. And then they feel shame over making the vow and then and not keeping it. And then they go back to the substance and you have this loop, this cycle that keeps happening over and over and over again. And what this means at least is this, that because God has come, because God has made us his children and and removed shame, not just begrudgingly saved us from our sins, but as our father has made a way for us, it means that we have hope. When I say that we have optimism, I don't mean that we simply look on the bright side and hope for the best. What I mean is that we have promises and assurance in the blood of Jesus that the deep places of shame that you feel in your life, the places where you feel like you do not measure up, where if people really knew the real you, they wouldn't love you, that God knows those places, has died for those places, and the truth about you is that you are beautiful and whole in Christ, that you have nothing to be ashamed of. And that, my friends, ought to allow us not to go back to the well of sin to alleviate the shame we feel. 
because God has adopted us as, our, as his children, we should not sin, firstly, because of our optimism, or for a better O word, maybe, or a better word that's not an O word, our hope. But this is not enough in and of itself to cease our rebellion, right? John continues that because God has adopted us as his children, we should stop sinning also because of our orientation or uh, to unpack that, where we're headed. What is our primary or- orientation? In verse two, if you look with me there, look at, look at verses two through four. In verse two, John continues looking forward to Jesus's return on the final day of judgment. And he speaks of a privilege that we possess if we are God's children now. Well, we do not know all the intricacies of how it will all happen, how Jesus will come back. We don't know everything about it. And John says that. He says that one day we will be like Jesus. To be like Jesus will include a couple of things. It, it means physically we will be like Jesus. Uh, Philippians 3 and 1 Corinthians 15 talk about us having a resurrected body like Christ. But it will also include having God's image, his morality, his goodness, his love on full display without any sort of imperfection. Uh, we will be perfect like Jesus. We, we, we do know something about the process of how that happens, though. John gives us just a little bit of a clue. He says that Jesus will appear in verse 2. He says he will appear, and then in consequence, we will see him as he is, and then we shall be like him. There's a very distinct process that happens there. And this comes at the end of all things for the believer but here's the crazy thing. This, this process, and the reason that it's important to kind of note those steps is that uh, this process is going on right now as well. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 gets at the same end reality, but he captures it from our present moment. He says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another right? Uh, our faces becoming unveiled uh, and, and being able to see Christ for who he really is. When we see him for how truly glorious and beautiful he is, our transformation to glory will be complete. Beholding him in his goodness allows us to uh, be like him. We will be like him. And, and, and that process has already begun. We are oriented and getting closer to this reality with every passing moment. I'm realizing now that maybe that doesn't make sense. Uh, The best way to illustrate that, the best way I can think of to explain why that would be so if you gazed upon God's glory holy is this. Sanctification kind of looks like uh, on one rail, you are noticing how good and beautiful and holy God is. And as you come to terms with that reality, you start to understand your sin more deeply and and better and greatly. And that therefore propels you to love God more and more, right? Think about it. If you see how good and beautiful and holy God is, that's going to call to mind. It's going to elaborate upon you who you are, what, where you, sorry, where you don't line up to God's goodness. And therefore you can see more and more how huge the cross becomes, how much God had to do to save you, to love you in your sin. 
And, and John says that that is our orientation, that one day as we see God's goodness and our sinfulness on display and we love God for it, right? One day we're going to see God exactly for who he is. We're going to see him clearly and we're going to see ourselves as we are. And that that will be our day of perfection, that that will be our day that we look like Christ. Have you guys ever uh, taken a long family road trip Anybody, anybody here? I mean, I was, you're Midwesterners, so you drive everywhere, right? Okay, just making sure. All right, if you've, been, if you've ever been taking a road trip to a, a fun place like the Grand Canyon or Disney World, uh, you, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, um, the, the dad like schedule, right? I don't, maybe your dads aren't like this, but my dad was. And it's, and it's this, uh, my dad was absolutely militant that we not stop for any reason whatsoever while we are driving. You know, you, I mean, it's like, I, I'm going to poop my pants back here. Well, you know, I hope you packed a spare. Like that's like, this is, there is no stopping for any reason, but here's, the, here's the problem with not stopping for any reason. It's, it's roadside attractions. And when you are a small child, they all seem so freaking cool. They all seem so cool. It's like, what? Is that the world's largest rocking chair? Why don't we stop for that? The world's largest insect? Oh my gosh, this is gonna be amazing, you know? Like, and so you'll ask your dad foolishly, because you have not learned yet. Dad, can we stop and see the rocking chair? Dad, can we see the, the ant that's supposed to be really big? And he's like, that's a tourist trap, son. Like, we're, we're gonna keep moving. And you ask him and he's, he keeps saying no. And you're like, okay, but can I have a bathroom break? He's like, no. And he just keeps pushing forward, right? Uh, and, and then you ask this question, which is the worst question you could ask. Are we there yet? <laughs> right? You say, are we there yet? And he says, we're closer, which is true. <laughs> then when you asked five minutes ago, what John is saying is that we are almost there, that we are bound for our destination. And it is so sure that our destination is so sure. And like a father with a mission to get to Disney World or the Grand Canyon, or some other family vacation, we are hurtling ever closer to that reality. So why would we turn off course for sin, right? It's, it's not that sin isn't attractive, right? The, the yarn is cool, you know, the whatever seems fun at the time, but if we're bound for the glory of Disney World, why would we settle for anything less? Why would we hold on to idols of status and significance and your grades, a job, social status, why would we keep looking at those to be our identity if we already have what we need in the Father and we are bound to only know that more? That the king of the universe delights in who we are. If we're headed to Disney World, why are we looking for a ball of twine? Because God has adopted us as his children, uh, John says, firstly, that we have optimism, but secondly, in this point, that we have a different orientation, right? That where we are headed makes no sense to stop at anywhere else, to look for our identity, for hope, for happiness. But that's our, that's our future, right? Everything I've talked about is like, well, when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes back, this is this is where we're going. This is, you know, what's true, what God's going to say on the last day. John's talking a lot about that, but what about now? Yeah, maybe I live in light of it, but what, what if I just sinned right now? 
What if I did what I wanted right now and then hope it gets ironed out in the end? Well, that brings us to our third point. Uh, Because God has adopted us as his children, we should not sin because of our operation. Because of our operation. Look with me at verses 5 through 10. Look at me at verses 5 through 10. John here is essentially saying that right now, if we are God's children, we should be about God's operation, God's family business. Uh, calling a family business an, oper- an operation. It feels like a little mafia-esque to me, but it was an O word, so I went with it. Uh, we've got an operation here. In verse 5, right, look, look particularly at verse 5. We're told of Jesus' mission. What's his operation on earth? In his first coming, he has one goal, to take away sins. That is God's end game, right? He lets us in on the mission to remove the rebellion that exists in the world and liberate us from the sin that ensnares us and is slowly ruining our lives. It comes as no surprise then that we share that same mission if we are part of God's family. As children in this family, we are tasked with tending the family business. Righteousness is the delight of our Father, and so we should strive to live lives that reflect that. In verse 8, if you look there, we learn that the only other option, the only other option besides this family business is the one across the street, and it's Satan's, it's the devil's. Satan, who has been opposed to God, has been spinning his lies from the beginning, says John. He has been sinning since the beginning. Uh, he's alluding to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, our, our great-great-grandparents, our first grandparents, were tasked with tending God's garden. Uh, they had everything that they needed. God was perfectly in relationship with them, and they never knew any sort of want or lack or of desire. God met all their needs. And yet, Satan, as a slippery as a serpent, comes into the garden And he starts to question God. He asks Eve, did God really say that you couldn't eat of this particular tree? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Can you really not eat of that? I don't know. And Eve reminds him, well, we're not even supposed to touch it, which God didn't say. But Satan's like, well, you know why God won't let you eat, right? It's because if you eat of it, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, the fundamental lie that, that all of rebellion, human rebellion is, is founded on is this. God is holding out on you. God's holding out on you. If you eat this tree, if you disobey him, if you go your own way, then you'll be happy. You won't need him. You won't, you won't be dependent on what he thinks, what he wants. No, you can find out whatever you want for yourself. And that's the best thing for you. That's the lie that Satan whispers in Eve's ear. And you know what? She falls for it hook, line, and sinker, and as does Adam. And now we all live in this fallen world. We all live with this same rebellious heart that caused Adam and Eve to sin. The question before us is this. Whose family do we want to be a part of? Who are we going to believe? Do we want to believe Satan's lie that God is holding out on you? Or do you want to look at the cross, know that there is nothing God wouldn't do for you, and joyfully and wonderfully become his child submitting to him, being about his family's business, loving your brother and your sister, as he says in verse 10. 
uh, I, I will urge you, if you're here tonight and you are thinking about that, uh, try it on. Right? Uh, one of the things we like to say here at RUF is that uh, it's okay to try on Christianity, uh, like a pair of pants, try them on for a little bit, walk around, see what it feels like. What does it feel like to live like God is your father and that you are about the family business? Does it feel liberating? I bet you it will. Try it out. Try it out. Try out this family. Try out this business. One final angle on this to consider on this passage is this. Uh, if you're here and you are a Christian, you've been a Christian some amount of time is, okay, why do I continue to sin, Nick? Right? Uh, and John keeps kind of seems to say, like, I shouldn't be. Like, I should never sin again if I believe this. And I keep, and I do keep sinning. Is there a, a point where I'm going to, you know, not be a Christian anymore. Jesus isn't going to save me because I have kept on sinning. How much sinning is, is keeping sinning, right? And I would say to you, that's the fundamentally wrong question. Instead, I, I think to expand our family business model, I would say like this, and uh, Paul will say the same thing in Romans uh, 7 and 5. What John is saying about sin for the Christian life is this. It's like, working on the top floor of the Northwestern Mutual Building downtown, being a big wig, a CEO, you wear a suit to work and a tie, uh, you're, you're, you want for nothing. That's your business. Sinning is like getting off work at five or like three because you can go golfing or whatever and full suit and tie, pencil skirt, if that's your deal or whatever, and, and going to Taco Bell and then cleaning toilets. It makes zero sense. You're employed already by a beautiful family, by a beautiful father, by a family business that is wonderful and takes care of all your needs. And yet you decide to go to Taco Bell and clean the toilets that probably have not been cleaned since it opened in 1968. I mean, you can do that, right? You can do that and it won't change your status at the other company, right? But why? Right, what John is saying is like, you would never, like, why would you do this? This is fundamentally not true of a Christian. They don't keep on sinning because why would you? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, yes, we do, right? We do. This is the, this is the crazy phenomenon in the Christian life that we do the things we don't want to do. That sometimes we get off work at our amazing job and then we go to Taco Bell and clean toilets, but we don't have to, we don't have, we are a new creation. We don't have to go back and put on the dead body we once had. If you're a part of God's family, why work for Satan? Why go to talk about? Because God has adopted us as his children, we should not sin. And firstly, because of our optimism. Secondly, because of our orientation. And thirdly, because of our operation. Let's pray.